Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. Thanks for joining us today and listening. We've got a really interesting story, and it's a live story. I've got Ruth Ponarski, and she has had, she's written a book in 2020, Journey of the Self-Memoir of an Artist, but there's a lot that led up to that. So she grew up in Glen Cove, Long Island, New York, attended public school, graduated from Pratt Institute, earning a professional degree in architecture in 1982. As a child, she excelled in art and math, which influenced her decision to study architecture. In 1977, she was in her fourth year in college, and as most college kids do, you go to a party and she innocently ingested angel dust that was baked into a brownie cake. And this triggered years of life-threatening nervous breakdowns. And they occurred every six months to a year. In between those breaks, she was able to graduate from college. She struggled with employment. She traveled alone, made friends, and was always searching for Mr. Wright. For seven years, she was under the care of a doctor and self-destructive patterns, including severe insomnia, paranoia, irrational thinking went unchecked until she found the right doctor. And that was after she suffered a 30-foot fall from an apartment window in 1984. Finally, her her life became normalized. The breakdowns occurred less frequently. And in 87, she married and became the mother of two children. In 1988, her doctor suggested she turn to painting, leave behind the architectural and construction world. And painting painting allowed her to channel her creativity and focus on being productive as a professional artist. In 1995, she wrote poetry corresponding to each of her paintings. In 1999, she was described a very effective antipsychotic medication. And a few years later, The current dosage was established, and since 2010, she has been break-free. As I said in the beginning, in 2020, she published her memoir, Journey of the Self-Memoir of an Artist, and she continues to paint and write and achieve inner space for herself today. And that's really a remarkable story. It's not, and it was such a happy ending. Ruth, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. You know, it's it's mental health, mental illness is always hard to deal with, but particular when you kind of fell into it for all the wrong reasons. Absolutely. I didn't plan on doing that at all. Um, let me my I might want to add because the angel dust did me in, um, I had a um, precedent before that. In my sophomore year of college, I was in a group of architect students, and we would um, smoke marijuana at our little parties. And one night, I smoked so much of marijuana, I blacked out for four hours, and then I woke up in almost like a comatose experience. And then I said, you know what, from then on, I'm not going to indulge in marijuana or anything at, at that point. But it left me paranoid. It left me in a depressed state. 
I was goalless and I was passive in my studies. I, I didn't do well at all. I couldn't concentrate. So that was like the prerequisite to that party in 1977 when I was in, I innocently ingested angel dust. And so that, you, had, you had already yeah. made a decision that you were not going to participate in that type of activity. Oh, absolutely. And very, very little drinking alcohol. I was very clean, uh, you know, of marijuana, um, but the effects were still there. I was still suffering from depression and a low self-esteem. So taking that, ingesting that angel dust just tipped me over the edge. It triggered what, what went on after that. So... Do you think that you were, you had a struggling psyche to start with? Well, yeah, that was the struggling from from smoking the marijuana. If I hadn't done that, I, I think maybe I would have been a little bit better off. I don't know. That's unpredictable. But, um, you know, I had a very creative mind, a, very, a lot of webs of creativity. And it was a very... Um, a challenging program that I was in, in architecture. I started in a college up in the North. I won't say the name. Uh, and I had later, after uh, my first breakdown, um, I had gone home to Long Island, and then I transferred to Pratt Institute at that point. And the architecture program was a very, it was a five-year program I was enrolled in, and I never gave up because I had all these uh, breakdowns going on. I never gave up in between my breakdowns and I was able to achieve a degree in architecture. It took me seven years, never gave up. And the message in all of this is never give up. That's keep going forward, even with all these handicaps. Well, and I think that's a message that a lot of us need to hear because unfortunately, you know, life is a journey and we do hit some big bumps in the road and there are many times that we feel like that we should just give up. And you didn't. I mean, and, and going through what you did, first you had you didn't have the right medical care. You didn't have the doctor that really recognized what was going on with you. And that must have, have left you in a state of despair. Not only despair, I, I, it left me in a state of failure. I felt like a failure. And But I'll tell you one thing, in between each episode, when I came, they would last maybe like to heal about three weeks, maybe in general. And after each episode, episode I thought, oh, you know, it's not going to happen again. I'm cured. And it did happen again. And until I, when I got the right psychiatrist in 1985, um, he this doctor was very full of common sense and he paid close attention to my symptoms. And after a while, I was able to accept that I had this mental cyclic illness. And when I accepted and acknowledged it, I was able to be conscious of when the symptoms were coming on. And I was able to, after a while, I was able to curtail it like taking more medicine you know, um, being very careful with the stimulus in my life, not to, to, to not to have too much. And um, eventually I grew out of the pattern of psychosis because we are all victims of patterns. We all have, we're all creatures of habit. And the, my brain was in a pattern 
of a cyclic malady of breaking down every six months to a year. It was a pattern. And the pattern had to be broken. And well, in, 1990, in 1999, when I, when I was prescribed this most effective antipsychotic medicine, I was able to slow down and look at myself at a distance. And I was able to recognize the symptoms as they approached. And I could curtail. I had much, many less breakdowns. They became very much more spaced apart, like one year, three years, seven years, nine years. And then since 2010, I've been break free. Broke the pattern. That's that's amazing. When you're what kind of support did you have going through all this? Well, that's an interesting question. In the beginning in 1977, you know, I had my father and my mother. And my mother really um, couldn't really deal with the seriousness of my condition. My father was more hopeful, like he would always, you know, be with me uh pick me up if I was, uh, you know, going through a breakdown, you know, he would make sure that I had gone to the hospital or, you know, stayed at home and um, have a little structure of living at home for a while. So they were basically my support system. But the the first psychiatrist I had who was rather negligent, he wanted me to develop a independence from my parents, like become independent and not so dependent on my parents. So he kind of like separated me from them, which was not good because when I was going through all these breakdowns, I led a double life. I really didn't tell anybody. I I was very isolated and I just knew people wouldn't understand. And there was a really high stigma on mental illness back then. Plus the fact there weren't many medications back then either. So my support system was really very, very minimal the first seven years before I found, stumbled on the right doctor. And the right doctor, I'll call him George, he was a Quaker and a a veteran of World War II, very, very worldly and full of common sense. And he included my parents in therapy. Once a month, my parents would come, we would have a session together. He also included my brother. When my brother was home from the army, my brother would come in and share a session. So he was very inclusive of my family. And eventually I developed um, close relationships with friends, not many, but a few friends. Whereas before the first seven years of my illness, as I led a double life, I really didn't connect. I had acquaintance friends, but I really couldn't connect with them or I was very disengaged in my existence Um, but actually but after the right doctor my support system became much more and then I and then several years later I was pretty open about my condition with a few friends and my life had really turned for the better so as a mom and raising two children, are they aware of your mental, your struggles with mental health? Oh, yes, they've lived through. I had, being married since 1987, I've had four major breakdowns. When they, were, when they were very young, of course, they didn't really know. But as they got older in their teenage years, I experienced 
a breakdown and they, they knew. My daughter came home from college to be with me and my son knew. And so at that point they knew. Very supportive, very, very supportive. And then when I'm out of the breaks, it's like, it's very normal. I'm, I'm very normal. And thank goodness I, I haven't had a break since 2010. And they just, you know, they live with it and they don't even bring it up. They've just, they've accepted it and, and we moved on. Do you think they we ever worry on. that, do you think they ever worry that they may be affected, that they may struggle like that you had to? Um, yeah, my daughter, she's a, she's a, a very strong truck driver. <laughs> she, uh, she doesn't, uh, it doesn't affect her. And my son had a few issues when he was younger, but he kind of outgrew his issues. Um, so no, they don't, no, they never really worried about getting it. That's um, great because sometimes yeah. the fear, you know, you see something happen to your family and the fear that that's going to happen to you can create their own challenges. Oh, absolutely. You can do yourself in by worrying so much. Yeah. No, they're kind of like, they go forward, they forge forward. My son is very independent. He's, he's living in Utah right now. And my daughter has a very, she's an accountant and she's just trucks on, she moves on. And, um, no, they're, they're, um, they're independent and that's all you can ask for your children is for them to be independent. Absolutely. And that's all you can ask in this world, actually. So what made you, what made you turn to painting? Is that something that you were exposed to as a child or was oh, that yeah, just my something? Mother, my mother was eccentric. She took me to a life drawing class, I think when I was about six years old. At six years old, I depicted, I drew um, a nude woman model. And the drawing came out very precocious. It looked like, it looks like a Picasso drawing, better than a Picasso drawing. And since then, you know, I had an eye for, uh, for art, an eye for um, looking at my environment and, and looking at the details of my environment that followed me through through high school and in college and um because i excelled in art in in public school and math and physics that you know as you said before influenced me to take up architecture but in the field of architecture didn't really agree with me when i was working in the field it was very male dominated the politics were harsh and um, I really wasn't making any advancements in my career in my in the uh, the toil that I was given at the at the companies at the architect companies and the construction companies so and I really I just didn't do well in the field so I did though in 1980 let's see 85 and 86 I did I worked for an interior design firm where I designed a store, the interior of a beautiful lingerie store. I renovated my father's business building and I renovated his house. So that was successful on my own. But then in 1988, George, my psychiatrist, the right one, suggested I take up painting. And I said, you know what, I'm going to do that. So I kind of left the construction architecture field and the designing field, and I became a full-time artist. 
and I'll tell you, painting and, and, and doing art is, it, to me, personally, much more creative, much more of a creative outlet than the construction architecture field. Um, because in the field of architecture, if you vie to be a designer, it's many, many years of being a draftsman. And I just didn't have that patience or passion. But I did develop a very big passion for painting. So I've been painting since 1988 for over 30 years. How and would I've you classify your style of painting? It's a surreal, surreal, rep, a surreal figurative style. It consists of a lot of animals and, and people. For instance, I have a, a painting, a card game, where there are four figures sitting at a table, and then there are uh, leopards and lions, lionesses in the painting, and it's called Whose Game? So they're playing a game of cards. Whose game? The animal or the card game? So they have poetic interpretations, a lot of the paintings. And they're also very, they're very therapeutic. They're not, they're not morbid or anything. They're just, they tell stories and they're poetic. Are there any that you particularly, that you think really reflect your soul? Um, reflect my soul? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the, the, the one painting I did in 1990. Uh, before 1990, I painted in sort of like an impressionistic kind of style of figures. And But in 1990, I made this painting of an, a Madonna woman who, holding a baby with an old head. And the head is Rembrandt's mother. I took it from an etching of Rembrandt's, one of Rembrandt's etchings. And she's holding her, I interpret that symbolic, she's holding her old self. And in the foreground of the painting is a cratered moon. And in the window in the background is the earth. And I wrote a poem to that. And the beginning of that poem says, I sail between two worlds, between the one that I know and the place that I fear. Um, And it goes on. And um, so that's a painting that really was the grandmother of all my surreal paintings that followed. That was the first really surreal painting that I orchestrated. So that painting to me is very special. Do you still have that painting? Uh, Yeah, I do still have that. And as a matter of fact, that painting, I I did two covers for for my book. One cover for the book is that painting. Journey of the Self, which is, that's the painting. It's called Journey of the Self. You know, you're, you're, you're holding your old self and you journey and you, and you always have memories with your old self that you carry with you to the future. So that's the symbolism behind that painting. Well, that touches me. That, that certainly has a lot of meaning into it. So it sounds like you've used your what you learned from your own personal struggles with mental illness, you've used that to influence your thinking and your creativity. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it's all the painting is a cure-all because I had such wild kind of imagination and paranoia that in my painting, I was able to focus on one thing at a time, take one day at a time. It gave me that sense. 
and um, it, it, the painting really did help me, you know, center my life. And also it became a passion. I think if you have a passion in life that could get you through all the hurdles because you have that passion. And that's what really helped me also is that passion that I developed in my painting. Um, yeah. And, you know, when you say the word passion, it sounds like in your, that in your struggle in college, that was something that was missing. Yes, it was. It, it, it really was. But, you know, I did have a very strong inter- interest in designing buildings and designing spaces. I, I really had that, which carried on into the spatial relationships in my paintings. Um, but I just, I, I was not patient and I didn't realize that you have to start from ground one to build and build and build till you get to the mountain. I, I didn't really realize that consciously. What you really have to do if you're going into a profession, especially architecture or law or anything, you don't start with the big, big cases. You build up, you know, and you have to have that diligence and that passion to be patient. I didn't have that in my youth. So when I was a little bit older, you know, in 1988, I saw all that I really was amiss in pursuing my architecture field. And I put all that energy into the passion of my painting. Well, that's a great story. It really is. And how, because, you know, sometimes we can tend to get caught up and get stuck in the negative beginning. And you really orchestrated that into a, a great journey for yourself. Oh yes, absolutely. Um, you know, you, they say hindsight is twenty twenty, and it's true. You can look back and then develop a skill and develop from that, uh, from what you didn't do and develop it into what you can do. That That is really very, very positive. And it allows you for the path of your passion. And, um, yeah, absolutely. Well, you, you shared with us how your, your painting really viewed an opportunity for you. How did... Writing your memoir, did that give you an opportunity to look at yourself more objectively? Absolutely. When I wrote that book and I really had a process of detailing my memory, um, I could see like objectively just over the years, the patterns that I was falling into and couldn't break. And I was able to look at myself at a distance And I also, I recommend for people to keep a journal, you know, a a, a journal of day by day, write down your feelings and the events that happened during the day and how you reacted to those events. And do you see a pattern in yourself, how you react to hurdles, climbing hurdles? Um, And you can actually improve how you cope with life, I think, by keeping a journal, which the memoir is akin to. Well, I, I do share your opinion on journaling because I think that it's such a it's such an easy way to observe your patterns and even more effectively to observe the change in your behavior. 
all of a sudden, because if we do something and we do it every day and, and all of a sudden we don't do it anymore, we may not even realize it until we look back and we see, wow, that that hasn't bothered me in the last couple of weeks. I haven't commented on that or I'm no longer, you know, d- demonstrating that behavior. And that in itself can be such positive feedback. Absolutely. I agree with that. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, though, I did not keep a journal and the, and the therapist never really recommended, although George, the right psychiatrist that I had, he kept a journal. He told me he writes down his whole day at night, his whole day that he went, what he went through and he would record it every day. So he was sort of like a model for me when I began to write my memoir. And um, he also, with our sessions, he took many, many notes, um, dictating what I was going through from each therapeutic appointment. He kept very, very good records. So we could look back and reflect on how I reacted to this, what I did there, what I didn't do, what I need. And um, it was very effective. And I, I might also say, I didn't say this before, that George wrote essays on um, common sense, like a, a vitamin regimen or how to eat healthily, um, how to cope with your insomnia, how to invest money all kinds of like common sense things of everyday life. And he would give me these essays. So that was another thing that added to the um, positive therapy that he instilled. Well, what advice would you have for someone, Ruth, that maybe can identify with your story? And maybe it wasn't, you know, angel dust baked into a brownie, but, but they can identify with your story. Maybe they, They've looked for medical care and they haven't found it. Maybe they've had more uh, medication that's non-effective than was effective. What advice, what tips can you share with them to help them continue to move forward? Well, a couple of things. A, never give up. And B, what I learned was don't wait seven years if you have the wrong doctor. Give it maybe four months. If it's not effective, then shop around for another doctor. I mean, it could be a social worker, a psychologist. They also have online now on the Internet, you can access therapists, which is new. So there's, there's therapy around. You have to shop around. If, if one therapy isn't effective, then try another. If one medication after two or three months, it's not effective, Either change the dosage with your doctor or switch medicines. Don't wait a year or two years where the depression or whatever you experience becomes your norm and you don't realize that it's not effective. So I, I suggest it's a trial and error basis. And, but never, ever give up. Always be objective about yourself and problem solve. Saying, you know, this is happening. I'm going to list what's happening this is what I want to change. This is how I'm going to go about it. It's, it's a series of problem solving. Even your mental suffering is problem solving. And if you could sit down and write and list what you want to change and go forward, keep going forward, forge ahead and don't give up and don't lose hope. 
Well, what I hear you say is something I've said time and time again, is you have to be your own advocate. You have to add, and I learned this with my mom, you have to advocate for someone's health. The No one else is going to do it for you. And I think many people think, well, the doctor, it's the doctor's responsibility. You know, they'll they'll pick up on it. No, it's your really it's your responsibility. Advocate for yourself. Take care of yourself. So for our listeners that are out there, we've got about three minutes left that would love to know where they can buy their book, where they can learn more about your paintings. How can they find you? Okay, I have two websites. One is ruthponiarski.com. That's R-U-T-H-P-O-N-I-A-R-S-K-I.com. And when you go on that site, you can go to another site of mine, which is called battlingmentalillnessalone.com. So those two sites, you could, you could purchase my book. Amazon is on there. Barnes & Nobles is on there. You could see all my artwork. I have two poems on my art website, ruthponyarski.com. And I kind of illustrate some of my breakdowns on battling mental illness alone.com. So you'll get information about that also. And I also have uh, media, you know, publications and where you can find, you could listen to me on several recordings. And uh, that's, that's where they can find everything. Well, it sounds like that you have really been open with your struggle and that you're very willing to share what you went through and and see other people can learn so much. Even just hearing a story that they say, wow, you know, I kind of I kind of had something like that happen to me. And the fact that you're you have said it several times, never give up keep going believe believe that in yourself and and believe that you'll get through it and that you'll find the right answer and honestly Ruth I think in today's world that's getting harder and and harder to do so yeah I it is it is and I truly truly appreciate you taking being so open with our listeners and taking the time to share your story because you're not the only one out there that something like this has happened to. I no, no. And if you read the book, you say, "Well, if she went through that, I can go through what I'm going through." That's Absolutely. Thank you so much for being a guest, Ruth. I really appreciate your joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you very much. of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and thebrainperformancecenter.com. Brain Performance Center.com.